Just stop it. The run of the mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk with someone who has taken the reins of their industry horse and steered it off the lame, tired path to venture into unexplored territory that has kicked the dust up on the status quo. Our disruptor today speaks three languages. She's an attorney. She's a badass attorney. She served five years as a JAG officer in the California State Guard. We're talking to her today about her disruptive pursuit to protecting our veterans. Coming to us live from Southern California, she's the executive director and co-founder of Veterans Legal Institute, Antoinette Balta. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Wonderful. Thanks for having me on today. Yes. You're so beautiful, by the way. I just had to say that. Oh, thank you. Yes. And um, okay. You ready, Antoinette? Always ready. I want to find out what this beautiful disruptor thinks. What is your number one ingredient for disruption? Absolutely has to be courage. Change is hard. And to make change, you've got to have courage because when you change up the status quo, not everybody's going to be on board. So it's almost always an uphill battle. That's like the biggest soundbite right there courage. It's always, almost always an uphill battle, right? So you've had a lot of courage in your career, right? Courage with what you do every day. Tell me what the status quo is regarding veterans and legal aid today. Paint the picture for me. Well, for veterans and their civilian counterparts alike, if you don't have money to pay an attorney, you don't access justice. So if you don't have the $400 an hour to pay somebody, even if you have a claim or a case or a defense, it really doesn't matter because you're going to go in pro se because nobody's going to represent you, Um, which is unfortunate because it is our veterans who fight and defend our rights and our freedom. And you would think that at the very least that they would deserve to access that very justice that they provide for us. Um, So right now, what we're seeing nationwide is just a lack of opportunities for people to be able to uh, have representation, paid representation. So we wanted to come in and change that specifically for our veterans whose issues are unique from their civilian counterparts. Oftentimes they have unique legal issues that are somewhat related to their military history. And we wanted to change that. Wow. So what you're basically telling me is veterans don't have Um, enough representation and they don't have enough help in this particular area, right? I would say that low income and homeless veterans, and you know, the the top 80% of veterans are entrepreneurs, they're leading in their field, they're running businesses, they're doing great. But we do have the bottom percentage of veterans who have mental health issues that have struggles that are related, uh, perhaps injuries or illnesses related to their service that need an extra hand up. Okay. I'm glad you actually made that differentiation, right? Because I think when people hear things about veterans today, we don't 
we always hear the 20%, right? We're not always hearing the 80%, right? That are the top of their game and doing very well. But the 20% really deserves to have the attention paid to it, right? Of course. So tell me, has this 20%, give me some data about this 20% that makes the status quo the way it is. Um, you know, has it been growing? How has things changed? How have things changed, um, you know, over the years with the different wars that we've had? Like, let me know. Well, you know, historically, when, when people returned from Vietnam, they weren't welcomed back um, graciously. Some people did sign up to go to Vietnam, but a large portion were drafted. And so when they returned, there were very few services, very few resources. Um, and as a result, there's been estimates I've seen that say we have over 200,000 Vietnam era veterans that are still incarcerated till this day. And why is that? I believe that it's because they perhaps had mental health issues related to their service, post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, they were not given the proper resources or tools. And as a result, they became sideways with the law. And some of them till this day are still incarcerated. But more shocking with that, KJ, more shocking than that, is that 22 veterans a day take their own life. And that's more 22 than, per day. Yeah, and that's more than in combat. And that's a shocking number. And it's a shameful number. It is a shameful number. And that's why we had to create a change and disrupt the system because we need to advocate and fight for those veterans zealously, give them a hand up and let them know that they're not alone and that somebody will help carry their burdens until we reach the finish line. That's awesome. And so this, I want to go back to this. You, you said something that was very interesting, this 200,000 uh, veterans that are still like Vietnam veterans that are still incarcerated, right? Not to mention the 22 per- per day that's, you know, committing suicide. That's not just from Vietnam, but you go back to Vietnam as a pivotal point, right? Is this society because society like sort of disowned them because there was such a big disagreement about the war, huge controversy is this, and are they almost forgotten because now that's what, um, how many years ago, how many decades ago that people just don't even think You know, I definitely think there's been a change in temperature. I think our country has become more mindful and patriotic of those who serve. I I often hear people telling, you know, people in uniform, thank you for your service. And there's a lot more awareness nowadays about mental health and post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. So I think that education has served the population uh, in a greater way. It's less taboo to talk about. Um, if you have an injury or an illness, and I think it's healthy to get it out there so that they can receive the help and resources that they need. Unfortunately, you know, post-Vietnam, uh, none of that was available. And while it is changing, it's changing very late. So I would say whenever I see, um, when I'm driving onto the on-ramp of a, a freeway and I see someone holding a sign and it says, you know, homeless veteran, can you help? It makes my blood boil because I, I'll usually look at the veteran and it's almost always a Vietnam era veteran. Um, wow. You know, it's, it, it is, it's mind blowing. Fortunately, the um, OEF, OIF, the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans um, have a lot more resources at their fingertips um, and there's a lot more outreach to them, but I definitely don't want to forget, you know, our brothers and sisters that served in Vietnam and even Korea, um, you know, they also deserve a hand up 
for what they did for our nation. Absolutely. So this 20% that you are advocating for more or less, right? Tell me about, you've told me about the status quo. Tell me about the disruption. Tell me where the innovation is on advocating for them and what you guys have done. Well, basically what we wanted to do, you know, you'll find oftentimes uh, civilian legal aids out there, but they have really pressing eligibility requirements. And a lot of times, believe it or not, disabled veterans because of their disability income don't qualify or they need the type of assistance that a civilian legal aid um, doesn't provide. It could be something like complex veteran benefits or discharge upgrades. It could be that the veteran doesn't trust the civilian legal aid because they don't have the military cultural competency. They don't speak the lingo. So that report isn't there. And they're probably not wrong um, because a lot of these issues, you really need to have specific understanding um, in order to effectively advocate for the client. So what we wanted to do at Veterans Legal Institute um, almost a decade ago, I really thought, you know, I'd like to fill this void and I wanna provide military specific services, meaning we only serve at Veterans Legal Institute veterans, active service members, reservists, and sometimes to an extent their families. Um, we don't serve civilians. We won't serve, you know, just because your grandfather served, we won't provide you free services. Um, we really want all of our staff, most of whom are military connected in some way or another, we really just want them focused on serving our heroes in need. Got it. So you've been doing this for the past 10 years and something that's very interesting to me that I didn't know. So the civilian legal aids, they don't really understand some of the complex issues and even the representation that veterans need, right? Yeah. You know, because it's a, it's a specific population. So for example, if you have heart issues, you don't go to the best brain doctor in the industry, right? You want to go to the best heart doctor. So right. even though that could be the best brain doctor, they deal with the brain. You want someone specific to um, the, the service that you need, the, the type of legal work that you need. And same in the law. If you have, if you need to file, for example, a bankruptcy, you don't go to a family law attorney, you go to a bankruptcy attorney. So right. um, we are essentially a legal aid of attorneys who only provide military specific services to uh, veterans and active service members. Wow. And so what makes this so disruptive? How does this really change the status quo? Cause you have a lot of attorneys on board, right. That have military backgrounds or connections, right. And I'm sure all of them need a lot of courage, right. What makes this so innovative in the legal system today? Well, you know what? We broke into a system that was really difficult to get into. First of all, we're a nonprofit. No veteran ever receives a bill, period. We don't take cases on contingency. Everything that we get goes to the veteran. So when I first come up with this concept, the first question my mentors asked me is, how are you going to fund it? You know, not everybody likes attorneys. Not everybody understands the power of having a legal advocate. And so that alone created an obstacle, right? A barrier to providing these services, but we wanted to fight forward um, because we are so mission driven. And so we thought, you know, we're still going to make this happen regardless. And so we were able to figure out funding. We got buy-on from some really creative partners. And as a result, uh, veterans who formerly would have basically no other alternative or very few alternatives now have a resource where they can come um, to date, and it's been a little bit less than 10 years, we've served close to 8,000 veterans. Wow. Um, you know, we've we removed barriers to housing, healthcare, education, and employment. 
it's incredible um, how we've been able to really take some of our clients and just take their lives from point A to point B and point B being I'm living, I feel more whole and I'm now viable. Um, so it's, it's pretty fantastic when you feel, when someone feels there's no hope and all of a sudden someone says, Hey, I'm here for you. I understand your issue and I'm going to carry you through this. And that's what we do at Veterans Legal Institute. You know, it sounds to me like you're really restoring their self-worth. You mentioned a lot went sideways with the law, with your veterans, right? They've, um, and I think that has a lot to do with self-worth, right? And if you're disregarded and you don't feel worthy, um, you know, this can contribute to a whole host of community ills, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the impact just generationally is amazing. We only provide civil legal services, so we don't provide criminal mm-hmm. the public defender. But what we do do is we try to come in early, usually um, those that have injuries or illnesses related to their service and specifically the invisible injuries that have to do with your mental health show symptoms, right? Before something big happens. Um, sometimes in their own way, they do make cries for help where they're looking. Um, and it's not until it's too late sometimes where they've, they've tried, nobody has um, seen them. They have been invisible, that something catastrophic can happen. Um, so I can give you many examples. If you, if you would you like, an example? yes, I want an example. I definitely, before you give me an example, cause I wrote down notes. Cause I was like, I want stories here. You mentioned something really key to me. You said this was a, a part of the legal system that was very hard to break into. What made that so hard? Why is that? You know, there's a variety of reasons. The greatest reason is funding. Um, attorneys nowadays, brand new attorneys come into the market making six figures. Um, even though we're a nonprofit, I still have to pay my overhead. I have to pay my rent, all the insurances. I have to pay salary. Uh, and then that gets very challenging, right? Because that means I have to raise enough money uh, to, to, to afford my, my attorneys a decent lifestyle. And you know, nationwide, public interest attorneys make significantly less than their private counterparts. Uh, So it's not that they are making a killing, but we do need to pay them because we also want to have quality advocates working for us. So that's probably the biggest obstacle. But also, you know, you need to get buy-in from the community. And as you know, the nonprofit community is already saturated. And a lot of the players in the legal aid community have been around for decades. So uh, some of them were averse to allowing a new player into the market because they view that as competition. You know, there's limited funding dollars. Are you going to take my funding dollars? And so we try to stay sensitive to that. And we try to seek out funding sources that are unique, um, donors that are unique, that aren't looking to fund general civil legal aid, that are really passionate about veterans and the military, and they want to pay it forward and they're patriotic. So those are the donors that we seek. And, um, you know, in time, I feel like a lot of the people, once they saw, you know, a few years in that uh, Veterans Legal Institute was growing and the trajectory was uh, amazing. And they saw the need, the numbers that we had and, and how our staff was growing and, and the community buy-on, they eventually all fell in um, and, and started supporting. And also, uh, you know, playing nice in the sandbox and also, you know, trying to help out other legal aides and, and, and work with them on different projects and collaborate. Uh, I think has really helped. So 
you know, a lot of people didn't think we could do it. They said, you know, no one's going to fund attorneys. But um, what I said to them was they might not fund attorneys, but they'll, they'll fund veterans. And yes. that's really what we're about is supporting the veterans. So fortunately, so far today, you know, the doors are still open. We've got close to 20 employees. Um, we utilize over 200 volunteers a year. We log in over 10,000 volunteer hours a year. Um, so we've been fortunate that a lot of the law firms in Southern California have kind of picked up the pace and said, hey, here's our specialty. We'd be willing to take a case or two pro bono a year. You know, hey, we, we don't know how to do discharge upgrades, but if you train us, we'll take a case or two a year. And so we've been really fortunate um, to have a lot of lawyers step up very humbly, very quietly and support our veterans in need. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I love the way you found innovative ways to raise money. Well, you know, I'd like to say I did it on purpose, but I really did it out of necessity. <laughs> so it was that or nothing. Necessity uh, is the mother of invention. I am convinced with that. Nothing happens without a necessity level being raised. Absolutely. Tell me, um, before you tell me a story, one other thing, what is the misconception around legal advocates? That is a great question. So I always find it entertaining when I meet people and they ask me, you know, it's like one of the first questions you ask someone, what do you do for a living? And I always say, I work uh, for a law firm and they go, Oh, are you a legal assistant? And I'm like, no, are you a paralegal? No, there's no shame in that game. Actually, I think a lot of paralegals are more fantastic than attorneys. I agree with you. I love my paralegals at my law firm. (laughs) Right. Um, So then I say, I'm a lawyer. And then right after that, the, the lawyer jokes come, come out and they're like, Oh, so you're an ambulance chaser and you're this and you're a, and I just like laugh. I'm like, well, I'm like, as you can see by the $12 50 cent jeans I'm wearing, <laughs> either I'm not an ambulance chaser. I'm just not very good. Or I don't work many hours. Um, but I love my job and I always explain to them what I do. And they always say, well, why, why would a homeless person, or why would a person at risk of homelessness need an attorney? And I'll explain things and I'll give them examples like, well, if you had severe post-traumatic stress because you suffered from military sexual trauma, you were assaulted in the military, and as a result, you weren't functioning. And then the worst thing happened is they booted you out. They separated you from the military with an other than honorable discharge. And so you didn't get your benefits or all of your benefits and your dignity because your family felt betrayed by your own military family. And you couldn't function, you couldn't work, you couldn't maintain relationships. Would you be able to navigate the VA bureaucracy and apply to the VA for um, your post-traumatic stress as a result of military sexual trauma? Would you be able on your own to do that, fill out that paperwork, figure out the doctor's appointments and, and write down what happened to you and show evidence and prove your own military sexual trauma? And if you couldn't get just another denial from the VA, and be slapped down again and, and devalidated again. Do you think that makes sense for a veteran who's already struggling? Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm like, well, let me tell you this. As an attorney who's been doing that for a long time, I get incredibly frustrated at the process. You know, the VA does amazing work, but it is a massive bureaucracy, the second largest in the United States after the Department of Defense. And so sometimes things get lost. Sometimes things take a long time. Sometimes things are confusing. Sometimes you can't get someone on the phone. 
And when you're already at a point where you are at the bottom of the barrel suffering alone, and you have to navigate that difficulty, that's when an attorney can come in and really change your life. And when that attorney wins your case and you can access healthcare that you need and you get your benefits and you restore your dignity and you have your honorable discharge and you get the monthly compensation for the lifetime of your injury or illness that now keeps you afloat so you're no longer homeless. I think in that case, you know, it's a good case to be made why an attorney would be relevant. And that's just one of many types of instances where um, Veterans Legal Institute and its attorneys really make a difference in veterans' lives. It's an excellent story. Do people, do they cognate when they, you tell them this? Do they realize, do they have an epiphany? Like, oh, I get it. You know what? I think they do. Um, it's hard because a lot of the people that we uh, work with are, you know, attorneys or people who have never really experienced homelessness or being at risk of homelessness. And, you know, Southern California is a very affluent place. And so it is hard to relate sometimes when you haven't seen or shared in those struggles. Um, so sometimes I'll, I'll tell sweeter stories, you know, how we were able to make sure a veteran was able to keep their service dog and not be illegally evicted for having a service dog or an emotional support animal. And they're, because it's, you know, animals resonate with them. So they're like, oh, okay, because they understand because they have a dog. Sometimes, you know, a different avenue, you can reach their heart sooner if you tell them a story about something that they can directly relate to. Right. It has to be along their reality. I would imagine many of the stories are hard to confront for most civilians. You know what? A lot of the stories are hard to confront for me. And I've seen so many of them. I'm, I'm, we're all human, right? We have feelings and emotions and I'm very empathetic and um, it can be very emotionally exhausting. I don't mind putting into 60, 70 hours uh, a week of work. But sometimes I have to kind of step aside and allow myself some space to breathe because some of these stories that we hear are so egregious and so unfortunate that it makes me think, you know, it makes me question, you know, the world I live in. And then I kind of have to recenter myself and remind myself, this is why I do this work, right? Because I want to recenter this person and I want to, I want to stand up for this person. I want to change that person's story. I want to change the trajectory of, of their life. So I need to stay strong, but not strong all the time. We all have moments. Oh, I bet. So tell me a cool story. Tell me a story where you or one of your attorneys have changed the trajectory of someone's life. I know you have tons. So tell me a couple. You know what? Um, we have lots of stories. I'll, I'll tell you one that's ongoing right now that just like burns, like makes my blood boil. Um, there is a certain group of people out there who find vulnerable folk, be it elderly, um, non-English speaking. Um, and they, they'll, they'll knock on their door and they'll say, hey, you own this house, we wanna help you. Uh, and in this case, it was the widow of a uh, Korea era veteran. And she's in her eighties and her husband has passed away and she's lived in this house for over 50 years. And they told her, you know, your windows are really bad. And so we'll replace them for you at no cost. We'll just add it onto your mortgage. It will be a very minor change. And, and this woman, um, you know, her house isn't worth much, but it's her house. And she lives on a fixed income, her social security and her pension. So she signed and they came in and they did some of the work and they charged her about four times that. And then her, um, her monthly payment skyrocketed to, uh, about $12,000 a month, which she couldn't pay. And they immediately started foreclosure proceedings. 
And this is so, egregious. Oh, oh, it gets worse because there's a loophole in the law that allows this company to do that. No. So um, this is a type of case that takes up a lot of resources because this is a litigation case. Um, and it's not something that we can handle by ourselves because we have so much volume. I mean, we get over 2,500 inquiries a year. There's so much volume of people that need other things that we can kind of bang out much quicker, mm-hmm. but we didn't want to leave this, um, this widow high and dry. We didn't think she deserved it. And we also wanted to honor the memory of her husband who worked hard his entire life to purchase that home. That was their family home. Um, and we also didn't want to see an 81 year old woman homeless on the streets kicked out from her own house. It's, it was, it was a hard pill to swallow. So we thought, you know what, let's team up, let's find some partners. And we did, we, um, we spoke with Ford and Delio out of Costa Mesa. Um, one of the partners there is a JAG officer in the California state guard. The other is incredibly patriotic. We talked to them. They said, we're on pro bono. We reached out to UCI school of law. We talked to them. They said, we're on pro bono. And we even talked to a couple of local legislators and we shared with them what's going on and about this loophole. And they've been conducting town halls to warn their constituents about this. That's and, fantastic. Yeah. So the, the case has been filed. The complaint has been filed uh, and we'll see what happens. But, you know, in my opinion, we're, we're definitely going to have to see a change in legislation um, and have better consumer protection so that, you know, people like our client, um, this veteran's widow, don't get taken advantage of because not every person that happens to is going to have Veterans Legal Institute come and say, we'll take your case on for free. Another attorney is going to say, I'll take it, but I need to start a $25,000 retainer. And that person's not going to have it. And then their house is going to foreclose. That's terrible. So I take it you're going to win. <laughs> you know what, God willing, from your mouth to God's ears. I'll tell you what, though, we did get the, um, the foreclosure stayed and we worked with, would you believe, and this is why I, I have so much faith in this world. Um, my, one of my attorneys at Veterans Legal Institute, his name is Doug Tennant, one of the greatest human beings you'll ever meet. And he retired after 30 years of private practice to come work at Veterans Legal Institute. Wow. And he's really the lead, one of the leads on this case. And he even went as far as to find um, people in the finance industry to help her refinance her home at the, at the 11th hour. And these people did pro bono. They didn't take any percentage or points or fees or anything. These two gentlemen um, refinanced her house very quickly. So she didn't lose it. So the biggest win is she's not going to lose her house either way. Um, you know, we've made sure of that, or we're at least hoping she won't lose her house, right? We today she is still housed. Um, so as for the case, you know, it is ongoing, and we're gonna work as hard as we can to present the evidence. At the end of the day, there's no doubt that this is an egregious, disgusting um, loophole in the law. Yeah, um, it's dastardly. It is disgusting. I don't use those words in the complaint, just so you know. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but we can use them here. Yeah. We, we can be as colorful as we like on KJ's show. Right. <laughs> Tell me about um, a story that's just like heroic, where it could be something minor, but it really changed somebody's life. I can tell that you're already changing this woman's life. And she may be 81 years old, but she found you and she's a fighter, right? What about a story where someone's life really turned around that you finish the case? You know what? I'll 
there's so many because what, what you might think is like not a big deal, or, I mean, we've done minor expungements for people that for us, it, it was two hours of our time. But because of that expungement, the person was able to go and get the job that they wanted. Tell me that because that's a big deal. Most people don't understand expungement. So explain that first. So first of all, because people are like, oh, you have criminals with expungements. You know, you can only expunge really like low level type of stuff. So you can't expunge sex crimes. You can't expunge. A lot of these types of things are typically DUIs from when a service member separated from the military. And it's almost always within that year. They're struggling to transition into civilian life. They drink, they drive, they get a DUI. Um, we had one client, I'll never forget this guy. He went, he was homeless. He went through a hard period with his wife. Um, she kicked him out, rightfully so, I think. <laughs> um, he starts he probably drinking. felt so too at the he time. Did. He's yeah, actually, like, I, mean, I deserved it. Period. Yeah, he was going through stuff. He goes back to the house, breaks in to take his stuff. She calls the police. He gets a... Uh, uh, charged with breaking and entering of his own house somehow. And anyway, so seven years goes by and this guy is homeless. He's living on the streets. He's drinking, he's struggling. He finally reaches the VA. His angels at the VA give him counseling. He commits to this program. And all of a sudden he's like, I want to go back to school. He goes to nursing school and he's sober and he's doing great. Well, he can't get his nursing license because he has a record right? He's got a DUI on his record. He's got a breaking entry. So he's like, Hey, can you expunge these for me? And I look at the record. Cause I always kind of want to know who I'm dealing with. And I'm like, this is an incredible story. So, um, we were able to expunge, um, those very old convictions. So expunge is an expungement is a misnomer. It's technically dismissed. I mean, they still show up on your record, but they say dismissed. And then we got uh, Miranda McCroskey, who's a uh, licensed attorney. She helps people restore their licenses to also work with us at Veterans Legal Institute because we like to partner up with the experts on these types of, you know, stranger, more unique types of cases. Yeah. He was able, he was able to get his license. So now he has a great job. He's doing wow. It. Turned his life around. Yeah. But Went you know, down like, the dwindling spiral and came up the dwindling spiral. That's awesome. He did. And you know what, to his credit, he worked for it. He owned it. He realized it. And, um, you know, he's, he's someone that I look up to because it's not easy to hit rock bottom and then mm-hmm. work your way back up. I think sometimes it's just easier to give up. Um, but there, there are plenty of really cool stories. I actually used to have an intern who is a Navy combat veteran. He was stationed with the, he was a medic uh, and he was stationed with my Marines in Iraq. And there was an explosion and he jumped on his sergeant major and saved the guy's life. And in the process um, was injured, man. And we were talking about it and I'm like, wow, that's so cool. You're a purple heart veteran. He goes, oh, I never applied for the purple heart. I don't need that. And I looked at him and I'm like, you, you didn't get a purple heart. I'm like, you were shot and you were <laughs> blown up. You deserve a purple heart. And he goes, I have it in my heart and in my head. And that's enough for me. In fact, I don't even know why I told you the story. Anyways, and this, this particular man, that's um, such a hero response. And and you know what? The majority of the veterans that we deal with are like that. They, they, I've had veterans who are extremely injured and hurt and struggling. And they say, I don't want to apply for my benefits because I don't want to take them from someone else. And I let them know. I said, well, you earn these benefits and right now you need them. So you take them. No one else. It's not taking away from anyone else there. There's a pile there for people with your injuries, but Back to this uh, uh, 
sailor. Years later, and he's still helping people in his daily job. And he, um, you know, he actually immigrated to this country when he was like 18 years old. So he, he's not even a naturalized, like he's not, he's not a, a born American citizen, but he really wanted to join the Navy and serve along. And he volunteered to go to combat. Anyway, so I had, uh, one of my staff members had been talking to John Dreck, who is also a Navy reservist who works at a law firm called Shepard Mullen. And we were talking about Purple Hearts and he's like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a JAG officer, I, I process those. So we were able to link up this one Navy veteran with another and they worked on the Purple Heart um, together, the application, which is no easy task. And um, the client was recently awarded his Purple Heart years wow. later. And he, I don't think in the moment he thought it was it, but when he put it on, he sent me a picture and he said, this is something I'm gonna give to my children. Oh man. Yeah. So oh, it's man. That's a good story. It's cool. And you know, because it wasn't life or death for this veteran, but it was incredibly validating. It was what he deserved. What he did was heroic. And you know, who's gonna remember it other than that sergeant major? But at least he has a symbol of his courage, right? Yeah. Uh, he can share with his children and say, Hey, you might see I'm different from other people because of my experiences. My experiences were different, but here's this token of what that looks like. And, you know, he got an acknowledgement, he got an acknowledgement, but he didn't seek it out. He didn't do it for that. It was really high integrity. Well done to you. Well, well done to him. I mean, yeah, you know, well done to him. Well done to him. I don't know if I would jump on someone else. If I saw bullets flying this no. way, well done to him. You're, you're in the situation and whoever you are, thank you for your service. Thank you so much. Wow. So you mentioned um, people that have gotten on board and helped fund this. And to me, those are the early adopters of this type of innovation, right? Who are the early adopters? What kind of people are they? What do they do? You know, um, the Orange County Bar Association, which is the biggest bar association in Orange County, they have over 8,000 members. They were our first adopter. And, um, you know, I went and I spoke to Trudy Lewandowski, who's the executive director there. Um, and I presented to their board and they had a, um, a grant application period and we applied. And honestly, they took a big risk because we didn't know, you know, they have limited funds. They raise money every year. Um, and a lot of people apply for these funds and, and they fund probably anywhere between 10 and 20 organizations every year. But they provided Veterans Legal Institute seed funding. And I believe without that seed funding, we wouldn't be where we are today. And so it's amazing to think how such a small amount relative, you know, relatively small amount at that time, without it, these 8,000 veterans wouldn't have been served. Wow. Well, shout out to them. Um, so you've do, you do about 8,000 a year, right? Or is it 8,000 oh, no. total? Eight, okay. Yes. Yeah. So it's 8,000 total and you get 25 requests, 2,500 requests a year. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how do you sort through all of them? So it's, it's a full-time job. We have people full-time that answer phones at Veterans Legal Institute. We have people who spend, um, significant hours each day reviewing each application. So if a veteran wants to apply, they do it online. Um, sometimes they can come in office or if they don't have a computer, they can call in and we help facilitate it. 
um, but we have eligibility requirements. Some of them are dictated by our funders. Um, and so, you know, it's there's strings attached when you accept specifically government funding, right? Mm -hmm. You can only help people who make under a certain amount of money. You can only help people looking at certain types of, of, of legal issues. So there are different rules. Um, we get sometimes, you know, inquiries, people who need help out of state, you know, we're only licensed in California. We get people located in California, but in areas that we don't serve. So we really only serve Southern California and specifically Orange County, Riverside County, San Bernardino County, um, and parts of LA County. And I mean, San Bernardino County, Riverside, and parts of Orange County, because of Prop 63 and California Department of Veterans Affairs who were willing to fund us, also an early adopter, right? Um, so out of those many thousands of inquiries, we do have to triage. Some people don't have a legal issue. Some mm. people have an issue that can't be corrected um, or that you know they, they have to go through something they're not ready yet to see an attorney. Um, some people have out-of-state issues and, you know, so there, we have to kind of field through. We sometimes very wealthy veterans will apply for our services. Um, we don't provide uh, free legal to people who can afford it. Yeah. You know, and it's not because we don't want to, I would, I would love to honor and pay back everyone who served in our military by, by providing them. It's a part of my talent or skill set. but it's just that there's so much need and demand for that bottom 20% that that's where we really, we want to stay mission focused and and really support them and, and not turn away from them. Yeah. So that makes sense. It's, it's a process and it's a detailed process. And, 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 and I use that word process, not lightly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we actually have a standard protocol of how we go through each one. It's very technical to make sure everybody gets, you know, the most, you know, gets the attention. The yeah. Day. Yeah. Good for you. And then if we have these early adopters and they've seen the vision and they've obviously stepped up, right? Um, who are those in our society that still are resistant to this type of disruption or change in our legal system? You know, I think we've had the benefit of credible early adopters like the Orange County Bar Association, like Volunteers of America, um, and like some of our other funders. And I think that's really helped to promote the validity and tell the story of Veterans and Veterans Legal Institute and the power of free legal aid. And so I think, you know, we're coming on now close to a decade. I think we, while we definitely have always a long way to go, I mean, my goal is to never say no to anybody. We're not there yet. We don't have the staff yet or the resources. But what I would say is that we, I believe that we've done enough goodwill um, and our stories have been told by our clients, by our collaborators, our partners, our funders. Um, so that I, I do believe that most people are on board with the type of work that we're doing. Now, can you get them to part with their money to fund what we're doing? <laughs> That's another question, right? Um, a lot of people say, well, why, why an attorney? Why not buy blankets for veterans or food? And I always tell people, I said, you know what, everything is important. There's a million beautiful causes out there, kids with cancer, you know, uh, women seeking employment. I mean, there's all of these causes are good and there's a need and there's a void. So we have to do our best. So I tell people, find your passion and go with it. Just do something. 
Um, so I, I do believe that people have bought onto this disruption because they've seen it time and again work. They see the change, they see the high impact an attorney can have, how they can change a veteran's life, how once an attorney is there advocating, it opens up this well of other resources. So they get more holistic services. They start talking to their attorney and their attorney says, hey, and here's where you get free mental health services. Here's where you can get furniture at Patriots and Paws for your house. Here's where you can get, you know, X, Y, and Z. I think people have started realizing like, oh, okay, attorneys can be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> they are in fact awesome, specifically the ones at Veterans Legal Institute. And, you know, when these nonprofits work together, they're better than when they work alone. That and is very so, true. Yes. And so we try to model that. And I, I like to feel like uh, we, we've got as close to 100% buy-on from the community as we, as we can have. That's great. Well, I know promotion and getting the word out and education is a big barrier for disruptors. It's huge. You said, so your goal is to never turn down anyone. So what does it look like for VLI in five years or 10 years? What's your vision? You know, honestly, one of my main goals is to retain staff. And, and that's a strange goal. I'm sure people don't say that and you know, I want to retain staff. Why? I want to have the best quality, most fiercest attorney warriors working with me that understand, especially how to navigate the different um, military bureaucracies that we work with. In order to do that, even though I know they love their work, I mean, we public interest attorneys are almost always, you know, we're a type, but we're empathetic. So they're unique. They want to do feel good work and they do that over financial compensation, but I definitely want to get them to a place where I'm paying them um, a, a very good wage where they're not tempted or forced to go somewhere else because they need to make more money. Um, and I'd like to increase the size of my staff, not because of my ego, although I do have one, um, but because I really want to respond to and quickly respond to every veteran that connects with us. So in order to do that, I need more people power. And I need to hire more attorneys and I need to get more volunteers. So in five years, if, if I could have my dream come true, I would say that um, we have a very healthy organization in terms of funding. Our attorneys um, all have the benefits that they need and are compensated at a competitive rate. And we increase the number of those attorneys as well as our pro bono partners at law firms. That would be... Um, a dream come true because essentially what would happen is we would be able to really magnify the amount of support that we're giving those veterans that seek our services. Yes, that will do it. You know, retaining staff is like the number three ruin for most organizations and businesses today. It's, re it's really very interesting. And you start with it as number one, because that is going to bring you what you need to help all of those veterans, right? You know what? Nobody talks about it. And, and, and I'm on the podcast and I'm representing Veterans Legal Institute, but the heartbeat of our organization is the staff. It's not me. They're the ones who deserve all the credit, right? So I value, I value the staff from our law clerks to our admins, all the way up to our attorneys and our management. Each one plays um, an important role in running this machine. Yes, that's true. And, you know, you seem to have a hybrid of the types of attorneys that you need, right? You need a type, but you also need them to be empathetic, right? Oh, absolutely. You know what? Um, I had someone say to me once, they said, oh, that's a lot of handholding that you're doing. 
I wouldn't do that <laughs> with my clients. And I said, well, your clients are a, they're, they're paying a large sum of money to you every time you send out an email. So they're going to be more likely to be responsive because they're paying you. I said, but B, you're also working with, and the majority of your clients don't have severe mental health issues. You're working with people in business. You're working with entrepreneurs. You're working with corporations. You're the, the population I'm working with, they struggle. So, you know, sometimes we have to have a little extra care in dealing with them and compassion. And that's why it's important um, to be less judgmental and more compassionate when you're doing public interest work. And in my opinion, just as a human being, I think we all need to kind of give each other a little extra grace now and then. That's right. That is absolutely right. So I want to know about little Antoinette. Were you always a warrior? I was born a beast, KJ. (laughs) (laughs) That's what my parents would say. My mom. You were born a beast. I love that. (laughs) You're out of there. I'm like, thanks, mom. Yeah. Um, So you speak three languages. So tell me how you came to speak three languages. That's a beast within itself. I barely speak one. (laughs) Barely. I love to talk. And when I go to another country, if I can't communicate, I go crazy. So you just got to learn. My parents are both Lebanese immigrants. And so we grew up speaking Arabic at home. And my mom, when my dad met my mom, she was actually at a French convent, you know, she's the first of nine. So she had to go to school at a French convent. Wow. All of the the French in Lebanon. So the, the nuns were all French. So my mom uh, spoke French. And so it was her dream for me to speak French. So I took seven years of French. I have a lot of family in France. So I like to visit them from, you know, before COVID, I would visit them periodically. I love to watch foreign films. Um, so my French is pretty decent. It's hard to practice in Southern California. Yeah. Uh, but as a, as a bonus, because everybody here speaks Spanish and French is so similar, my Spanish is actually really improving. Um, so anytime I go out, if I know someone speaking Spanish, I try to practice with them. And I, I try to watch almost anytime I watch TV, which isn't too frequently, but when I watch TV, I always try to watch it in a different language with subtitles so I can kind of pick up a little bit more. That's fun. It's exciting. You know, it's fun to communicate with people, you know, and, and when you speak different language, unless you're like a great dancer and some salsa music is on, how do you express yourself? It's <laughs> <laughs> so very true. And so you love foreign films. What's your favorite foreign film? Oh, I'm, you're going to out me on this, but I will say that I have a very bad and shame. Okay. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> This is our secret between okay. me and all your listeners. I really like telenovelas. Which Ooh, are- I wrote down telenovela here. I love telenovelas. I grew up I, in Texas, but I love I telenovelas. I'm pretty sure nobody's going to love me anymore. But I will admit to it. And I'll also say if you watch them, you'll love them too. Um, I live a non-dramatic life. They're very <laughs> so dramatic, like aren't they? Yes, I like to watch it on TV. Um, and so I like series, different series, and, and there's many. I just watched Velvet, which is a Spanish telenovela from out of mm. Spain. I thought it was great. It's about these 1940s seamstresses, not super dramatic, but good. I check it out on Netflix, guys. This is a not this is an unpaid promotion, but I thought it was really good. Um, but that that's my little guilty pleasure. I'll, I'll awesome. I'll yeah, cry I love that. that I you. love you even <laughs> more now. <laughs> oh my God. I, I should have come up with something like, no, I only read classical novels. No, telenovela. I love this. Um, so when did you, so growing up, you, your mom says you were born a beast. When did you know that you were a warrior? How old were you? You know what? Um, 
I've always felt strong. And, and I think that's because I had parents that made me feel like they always reminded me that I had the world at my fingertips. Um, you know, my mom in particular is, she, she got married at 16. And so for her with her daughters, it was so important. She'd always say, you know, you're gonna get an education. You can do anything you want. We live in the United States. Um, and that was very empowering. And, and my father who came from nothing and had nobody to support him and he, you know, had four kids and came to the United States by himself and, and really had to build this life. And, you know, who would always say, you know, if you work hard, you're going to make it because this country has opportunity. And that's what separates us from everybody else here. There's opportunity. And that is just very empowering to hear that and to be reminded and then to see them living it. So I always felt strong because I came from strong people. They might not have been driving the fancy cars back then or the fancy clothes, but I always knew, you know, their values and their work ethic was um, incredible. And we discussed oftentimes as families what that looked like um, with my brothers and my sister. So, you know, I, at a young age, I had the benefit of having that strong foundation. It's, it's something that I really honor and, and I feel blessed that I had that before anything else. Yes, you are. It's so important. And when did you decide to become an attorney? You know, my mom is, is fun. She's quiet. She serves everybody. She's humble. And she says, it's so funny because my mom is a, is a beast. She's five foot two, but this woman is a beast. She's oh, I'm sure she is. Few, few <laughs> words, but very meaningful words. She's like, oh, my daughter, you come to this country. You have anything you want. <laughs> You Oof. can be anything you want, <laughs> as long as it's doctor, attorney, or engineer. And I'm like, oh, okay, anything, as long as I'm there. So I knew I didn't like blood, so there was that. So doctors out. I still don't really understand what engineers do. <laughs> so <laughs> by virtue of just checking off, I was like, all right, attorney, it is. And so, and you know, I, I, I was, I've always been super talkative, and and you know, I. Might some might call it argumentative. I like to say I like to express myself and communicate, um, and that's something that people would say. Oh, that means you'll make a good attorney. So I'm I'm not adversarial at all. I do like to mediate things and 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 come to resolution. But I think that um, because I am passionate and because I can be articulate, at least on paper when I need to be, um, it lends itself to me being, you know. Uh, being a good candidate to provide public interest services because I am empathetic and I am patriotic and I love being American. And, and this is a great way to kind of fuse all my passions together, right? Like I can practice law, I can help out um, people and I can you know, serve veterans who I feel like I'm so incredibly indebted to. Yes, it's a beautiful package. How did you get interested in the military and veterans and you know, get in towards that particular angle. You know, I used to volunteer at a, um, an emergency shelter, which is at a national guard armory. And I noticed back then, and this was probably close to 15 years ago, but there was a, it was weird. There were a lot of veterans and I'm like, why are you, why are there so many veterans? Like it was probably three out of 10 that I was seeing. And that was before veterans were really like, really had the spotlight that they have now. And I thought, well, this is strange because veterans are, you know, leaders, they're business owners, they're entrepreneurs, they're heads of these Fortune 500 companies, they're politicians. Why, why am I here and I'm seeing all these veterans? And I started looking into it and I thought like, oh, 
the reason they're in the, it's different from the civilian, the homeless civilians. There are different reasons that, you know, attached to their military service. And I thought, you know what? I really want to fill this void. Like this, this is something that we can maybe not fix a hundred percent, but we could probably fix this by a large percentage. This is something where we can change lives. There, there is, there is a remedy for this issue, but the remedy has to be tailored specifically to them. And, and I thought this is, this is a void that I feel called to fill. Wow. You were doing it before it was cool. You know, I was, I, mean, <laughs> I, I kind of want to say I take credit for making it cool. Just yeah, kidding. good. <laughs> you should take credit. You know what? I think disruptors have enough arrows in their back. You should take credit where credit is due for sure. Is those to massage my sore muscles. After. <laughs> it's okay. I look at the positive. It's okay. You know what? It's I'll tell you what, anytime you're doing any job, regardless of what the job is, because everything needs to be done, whether it's perceived as important or not, every it's, you know, we're all part of this machine in life. If you're happy doing it, you are winning. And if you're happy, you are a disruptor because, you know, mainstream is always negative. The news is negative. People are complaining. And if you can be mindful of, Hey, I've got a job. It pays my bills. I like what I do. Like, that's awesome. Regardless of what your job is, you're a contributing member of society. And, and why not? I mean, you're, you're winning if you're happy. You're right. And that's another soundbite. You just gave another kick-ass soundbite. If you're happy and you love what you do, you're a disruptor. There you go. Yes. So what are your crazy passions? What do you do outside of work? Yeah. You said you work 60 to 80 hours a week. Yeah. So what so do you do when you play? I, so I have two teenage sons. And so a lot of times I force them to come to work events with me because <laughs> I'm like, I'm being a good mom and working, I'm doubling up. Um, but I really enjoy cooking and I love cooking with my voice. Mm. And my voice, I, I just want to say this from now and, and we'll replay this sound bite at my sons. If they ever get married, this will be played at their wedding. Their future partners are going to be so blessed because those boys can throw it down in the kitchen. with their Okay, mom. good. <laughs> they, they just, they help me. We'll make big meals together. We do the prep together. And I already, I like cooking because for me, it's like almost like a mindless meditative thing, you know, peeling the carrots, peeling the potatoes, like stirring the pot. Um, but it's, it's just a way that we bond together. You know, um, they like to do it too. They, they'll cook for their friends. Um, my younger son can make pasta by hand and he makes the pasta sauce. I mean, this guy is wow. you, like future, future wife is very lucky. Is what I'm <laughs> yes, they to. are. <laughs> you know what? I love men that can cook all the I, men in my family cook. Who doesn't love that? So, um, I, I really enjoy not, I, I enjoy spending time with them, but I like doing activities with them. So cooking is, is probably one of the things I like to do the most, um, because we, I love to eat. I've got. I mean, before my heart is my stomach, anyone who's like, we need to talk. I'm like, I'm busy. And they're like, well, I'm barbecuing steaks. I'm like, I'll be there in five minutes. (laughs) So that's one of the things. Yeah. I like to take my sons to outdoor gun ranges. Um, We like to, you know, play on the range and and I like to teach them gun safety. It's it's my way of bonding with my boys. I like to do service projects with them. So um, we'll do like beach cleanups through the Orange County Bar Association or through their outreach committee. We will pack lunches for the homeless or, and it's a way that I feel good in terms of my parenting. I feel like I'm teaching them how to think about others, but we're, we're also bonding because we're doing it together. And I also feel good because I feel like I'm contributing to society. So it's 
those are fun activities to do with my kids, right? Instead of just them playing electronics and me working all the time. So that's lovely. That's yeah, really quality. It's pretty awesome. I have awesome kids. I, 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 my goal is for them to become awesome adults. And I, I think they're, they're headed there. I think you're on your way. What's the uh, favorite meal that you all three love to cook together? You know what? Um, like I said, my youngest son is really into Italian food. His dad has taken him to Italy. Um, so he likes to make the pasta fresh. And my other son will make the meatballs fresh and he will, mm. he grinds the meat. He adds in all his herbs and he'll even put cheese in the middle as he makes it. I mean, this is like, no. a real thing, guys. It's like cuisine. Okay. I'm not <laughs> talking, this is not uh, fast food we're talking about here. Wow. So I enjoy making that with them, but I mean, really we do everything together, even just, you know, making sandwiches for the homeless, like just watching them, how they take so much care to cut the sandwich in half. That's so, so cute. Yeah. Yeah. They're, well, they're, they're thoughtfully in that. That's awesome. That's awesome. So how do people get a hold of you? And if people want to help, no matter what they do, how do they do that? Well, there's lots of ways to help and there's lots of ways to get hold of me. Um, so at first I'd say, if you'd like to reach me, um, you know, with your commentary, good or bad, uh, your criticisms, as long as they're constructive, or if you want to lend a helping hand, I welcome that. I'm on LinkedIn under Antoinette Volta. Um, you can also reach uh, Veterans Legal Institute through its website, which is vetslegal.org, uh, V-E-T-S legal, one word, dot org. And um, there are so many ways to help. You know, you could be an attorney and want to help with a case. You can be a paralegal. You could be someone who wants to do admin work. You can be a donor. You could be a, a person who donates items to our auctions if you don't want to donate funds. Um, we have volunteer people in finance. We have people who help us write letters to our clients and to our um, donors. So there's, we have people who help us just come in and, and do whatever is needed in the office. So there's a million ways to help. Um, we do have two board seats open at the moment. So we are looking um, always for people that are passionate about veterans and veteran services that want to come to the table and support the strategy of this organization and the growth of the organization. Okay, that's awesome. And then, so we have your website, we have you on LinkedIn, and is there a phone number? There is, um, my office number is 714-852-3492. Okay, good. Antoinette, thank you. Okay, Jay, the pleasure was mine. And again, let's just reiterate that they were holding in confidentiality the piece about the telenovelas. Okay. <laughs> Do we have to edit that out? I don't think so, right? <laughs> uh -oh. I should have had you sign a waiver to sort of form. This, this, that was bad the lawyering on my part. I should have thought ahead. All right. Well, if you learned something on this podcast today or you love telenovelas, let us know. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Interruption podcast, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.